Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, January 26th, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, Asit Sharma and I are taking a deep dive into the world of high-end gaming and talking about a unique business that recently went public, Corsair Gaming. Asit, welcome to the show. Emily, thank you as always for having me. Yes, Corsair is a really interesting business, and this has actually been a business that I've been intending to talk about on the show since its IPO uh, late in 2020. I have a group of friends that I have increasingly been remote gaming with, and uh, this was a business that when it went public, it was the entire talk of my gaming friend group because they were all so aware. And I, being the uh, lackluster gamer that I was, I wasn't as aware of this business, but Corsair is a provider of high-performance tech gear for gamers. So they sell things like components and streaming peripherals to both professional and increasingly amateur gamers. So it's definitely an interesting business. Obviously had a great 2020 as we've all been playing games a little bit more often than we were maybe in years past. Uh, But I'm excited to kind of dig into it with you today. Yeah, let's dive in, Emily. And I should say, though, before we do, I got to ask, what is your favorite game that, that you play in your gaming group? Oh, that's a really good question. And uh, this is a little bit embarrassing to admit. Uh, but recently, probably for the past three or four months, we've been playing a game called Killing Floor 2. Uh, it sounds very aggressive. Um, it is a little bit aggressive, but it's essentially a team-based zombie killing game. Um, and it's not typically something that I would play with. I grew up playing things like The Sims and Roller Coaster Tycoon. I still like management style games. But there's something really cathartic to me about like having a long day of work, you know, maybe getting back from the gym and then having the opportunity to sit down with some friends and just you know, kill a bunch of zombies. That is so awesome. Uh, you know, we always discuss this. I'm a little slightly older generation, not that much older, but slightly older. So my gaming experience was the Atari generation of games, Asteroids and games like Defender. So I am actually the zombie that you're trying to kill. I think I've, I've reached an age where <laughs> rather than kill zombies, I am that, that person that's on your screen. But anyway, on to business. Emily, can I give a little background on Corsair and then we can uh, talk about the, the business model, etc.? Yeah, please do. I, I know nothing about the background of this business. So I'm excited to hear it. I have just learned, although I, as um, I'll talk about a little later, I have been introduced to Corsair by someone I know uh, a few years ago, but really didn't understand anything about the business model. Pretty interesting. This company was founded in 1994, and one of the three uh, co-founders is still around. This was originally called Corsair Microsystems, and it was known in its first year as a manufacturer of computer components. So this is memory liquid cooling systems, all the kinds of um, maybe boring stuff to me, but really exciting stuff if you are a do-it-yourself PC builder. They noticed as they were growing that a lot of the stuff that they were making was very good for an adjacent industry, which is the gaming industry. In the mid-2010s, they decided to tap into this gaming market, and Corsair uh, went ahead with developing a product line that was centered around gaming. And this included branded PCs and peripherals. They were really 
engineering focused from the beginning, Emily. So they had much respect in this do-it-yourself PC community when they actually went into gaming. Really instant bona fides, uh, and that allowed them to tap into what's become a huge market. And we'll talk about the size of that market as we go on. So they actually had to recreate themselves as an edgier company from Corsair Microsystems. They became Corsair and then Corsair Gaming. And they built their marketing focus um, as they shifted gears around this idea of a company that would appeal to younger uh, people, generation. They changed their graphic design, um, made themselves look like a much younger company. In fact, I was surprised <laughs> to find that they've been around for so long. I don't think it's often that you see a, a tech-enabled business that has such a loyal customer following, such a strong brand that is also so old. I mean, this is really a business that seems to have reinvented itself. And you still see that today. Uh, reading through their S1, and admittedly, the S1's a little bit old now. I think they've had a quarter or two. And possibly. I think it's just one quarter they reported as a public company since going public. So the S1, um, while still relatively up to date, admittedly is not as up to date as if we were getting to it right when it was released. But one of the things that I noticed when looking through their S1 was just um, how dependent they are. And maybe dependent's not the right word. Uh, maybe reliant is a better word. They're reliant upon loyal customers to maintain their market position. They've, they've got into really strong and, and competitively dominant market positions and virtually virtually, excuse me, virtually all of their niches, in part thanks to the brand awareness and reliability of their products from gamers. So uh, when you think about what's important to a professional and even an amateur gamer, things like speed and reliability, these are things that really matter. And when they're talking about spending upwards of, of hundreds, even thousands of dollars on components for their computers to improve their game or their stream accessories, it's really important that they go with the right brand. And Corsair has that long-standing reputation. So it's really been beneficial for driving users to their products. Yeah, and I think that um, this is something that when you look at this industry a little bit, you'll see that there are just a few major players. So we know there's a company called Razer, which trades out of Hong Kong, R-A-Z-E-R. -E there's also Logitech, which is known for making a bunch of peripherals. And then as you go on, there are many more smaller companies and even boutique companies that make gear for gaming. So it, while it's a growing market, there has been room for this company to muscle in and get some market share. And when you look at, uh, I guess, what drives their business, what drives their revenue, it's really just two main gear groups. So they have what they call components and systems as one group, and then peripherals as the other. So when you look at components and systems, these are uh, memory chips, right? So things like RAM, um, computer cases, power supply units. And as they broke it down in their S1, they have the, the dominant market share in virtually every single component and systems gear group that they offer. And then when you look at the peripherals, so keyboards, mice, uh, headsets, streaming gear, they're increasingly becoming dominant. This is in part thanks to acquisitions, but they're trying to develop an entire suite of products that can really serve somebody who is doing it, whether they're you know streaming uh, Killing Floor 2 after work like I am, or if they're all day, you know, 9 to 5 or 9 to 10, whatever it may be, streaming for a live audience. Yeah, Emily, you know, and this is something that 
both entices me and gives me pause. So when we were researching this episode, you pointed out that in the peripherals market, so we're talking about keyboards and mice, uh, things like that, Corsair has expanded its market share from 5% at the end of 2013 to over 18% in 2020. And in the components market, so this is memory cards, uh, power supplies, etc., the company has grown its market share from 26% in 2015 to 42% in 2020. So on one hand, that is really amazing. And it's incredible that a company would have, let's say 42% of a market. That is a huge number in any market that you're going to play in. But it also makes me think, well, how much more is there for Corsair to grab? I mean, it already has the number one position in all these different categories. And if it's not number one, there are a few where it's like number two or at the worst, number four. So I guess this is something that we can break down a little further as we go on. But it was one of the things that made me wonder as an investment, okay, how much growth is there for this company? Yeah, that's a really fair point. And as you mentioned, when we get to how their revenue breaks down, we'll we'll dig into those numbers even deeper and and further highlight maybe the the lack of growth opportunity there is in their their certain verticals. But it is really impressive, and it does mean that okay, once you're in that dominant position, sure, the only place to go from number one is down, right? But you can also leverage that number one position to get new products, to just expand the number of verticals you offer. And one of the ways that they've been doing that recently is, is getting into software suites. And I got really excited when I saw this in their S1, because as we had mentioned up to this point, Corsair's really just been a hardware play, which is a good business, but it's a low margin business. It's a hard business to really scale the way that we've seen some of these like crazy tech giants scale, right? The gross margins are inevitably going to be lower. So when I saw that they had two different suites of software products, IQ, which is software aimed at, at casual gamers, and then Elgato, which is a software that they acquired that's aimed for content creators, the first thing that started going off in my head was uh, subscription revenue, subscription revenue. This is great, right? Software, it's high margin, recurring revenue. And it's just not that. These are actually just one-time sale products, which to me is a little bit of a, of a missed opportunity. But the more I dug into these suites of software products, the more I realized they're really compelling. Um, they're not for everybody, but for somebody who spends a lot of their time gaming or streaming, uh, being a general content creator, doing this for a living, it's really hard to av avoid products like Elgato's, especially things like Streaming Deck, which is basically become um, a necessity for professional streamers. So while there is no recurring revenue, and that makes me kind of sad as an investor, I will admit they're also they also seem to be doing a good job of of getting that same brand recognition in software products. Well, this is a really good way if you already hold the market to expand um, what you have, especially through customer loyalty. And if you're marketing to those who are pretty sophisticated, so uh, maybe starting with Emily, if we we just think of um, a pyramid of gamers, maybe Emily's at the base. I'm I'm guessing you're not really really hardcore in gaming, but I may I may not know Emily. You might be doing this six hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had that much free time. I know I know. So, but we look at going up the pyramid where there's a smaller number of people that are the true enthusiasts and geeks. I'll say that in a nice way, who really can build their own computers and create um, their settings and games. 
those are the ones that often can help bulk up that lifetime value. So if you've got the market, but you've got a lock on people who are going to be um, spending as a lifetime customer an enormous amount over the years, um, I think that's that's a pretty decent way to to build your business model. And especially as as you mentioned, the company isn't afraid of acquiring these pieces. As um, you mentioned, Elgato, that's an acquisition. Just want to point out here, we won't talk about all of them, but Corsair is sort of a serial acquirer over the last few years. They've acquired about three companies in short order to help flesh out uh, their product line. And I, and I like that. I, I think that's um, important and necessary to keep grabbing more out of your customers. So to if you've got the market share, keep extracting more from those regular purchasers. Yeah, that's completely fair. And I think the downside of, of their acquisitive history has just been the amount of debt that they've ended up loading on as a company. It makes me a little bit nervous. On one hand, I recognize that Corsair, in order to not be that 20-year-old hardware play, in order to be the next generation of both software and hardware for gamers, in order to get to that point, to justify its valuation today, right, to make me as an investor want to buy, they probably need to be acquiring or at least pumping a ton of money into research and development to find the next best thing that's a necessity for gamers. So I recognize that on a logical sense, it makes sense that they'd be taking these moves, but financially, it's it's hurt them. I think Corsair has something like $300 million or nearly $300 million in net debt. So that's after their cash. Um, and a large portion of their operating income um, is taken out by interest payments, which is something I, I noted. Over the past 12 months, um, 30% of their operating income went to interest payments on their debt. So presumably, this is relatively high interest debt they've taken on. And when you look prior to 2020, so prior to this amazing boom cycle we've seen in demand for computer hardware, interest payments were consistently greater than operating income. And I know that you have a logical reason for why this is, and I'll let you explain to investors maybe why they shouldn't be as concerned about that as I've maybe painted it out to be. But either way, it just doesn't leave a lot of shareholder value, right? When you have a lot of debt that's higher in the value chain than yourself. Yeah, Emily, you know, I actually... um Usually, I'm really skeptical when I see this. It's sort of like a pattern that you've seen before, and and you know we can jump into this now because we'll be able to explain something else about the company. Um, in that, for the longest time, this has been uh, a growing organization that's controlled by a pi- private equity company called Eagle Capital. So when you're controlled by private equity, typically that's different than when your backers are venture capitalists. A venture capitalist is uh, a group of investors or, or a company funded by investors that is really looking to maximize what they can out of an eventual IPO. And so they're pretty careful to build a really strong business model. A private equity firm is a little bit of a different animal. It's the type of company that doesn't mind carving up a company to extract value. They're very value extractive. And so they really don't look when, when you are being funded and um, sort of managed through a board by a private equity company, they don't mind if you take on a lot of high interest debt. This is something I've seen time and time again, the difference between the two animals. Because private equity often sticks around after the IPO, and they continue to get um, their rewards. They'll sell little tranches of um, stock. They'll get preferred dividends down the road. They're in it for a really long time in some sense. And I think that can lead to subpar returns. So I actually... I do sort of worry about it a bit because in investments I've looked at, 
the record is mixed. Um, I, I can think of companies where it just didn't work well after the IPO. There wasn't that true emphasis on growth. But then there are companies like BJ's Wholesale, which was in a very similar position uh, in that they were controlled by private equity and they had a lot of debt on their books. They used some of the IPO proceeds to pay down some of that debt and, and they've done pretty well. Of course, they've had a pandemic boost. And I guess what you were referring to earlier, um, Emily, is that uh, they did pay down some of their debt with their IPO proceeds. So the debt on the books is a little bit less now. So that's good. I will point out, though, to your point, this debt is all high interest debt. It's not cheap. Um, and I wish, I, I, I like the company's market position. I wish they'd been a little bit more careful. And um, there, you know, we, we, we get into the weeds here. Are there any other number of ways to take on debt on your books without having to? pay a high interest expense. We'll leave it there. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and it's funny because before we started taping this episode, uh, we were coming on Motley Fool Live when another co-host was leaving and they were having a conversation about Yeti, um, which I promptly picked up before we started to tape because I know we've talked about Yeti a lot before, both on Motley Fool Live and on this industry-focused podcast. But that was another business that was heavily in debt by a PE firm that had been milking the business using Yeti's cash flow to pay themselves special dividends and then spun it out in an IPO use the proceeds from the IPO to pay down their debt. It was a little a cycle that I didn't like to see, but I was really wrong with my my kind of, uh, I guess I should say, tepidness that comes with heavily indebted businesses that are going to public markets because like Corsair, Yeti was a brand-based business and that brand carried a lot more weight than I initially gave it credit for. So I can see a situation where Corsair has done a similar thing and and really grabbing a captivated audience of gamers and people who are looking to upgrade their systems by retaining their number one position, by being Corsair, it kind of by proxy makes whatever they do next more likely to be successful. I won't say it will be successful, but having that loyal base of fans, I don't want to devalue um, how important that is because it does give them a lot of optionality with new products, new acquisitions that they get in the future because they already gotten past step one, which is the brand awareness and the end user. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's break down this revenue model so we can get a little bit of a clear picture on how they make their money. Um, Emily, you've pointed out when we were prepping for the show, that most of their sales are coming from gaming components and systems. So this is led by the sales of memory cards like Think RAM. Uh, this makes up about 40% of the business. This, if you look at last year in, in their uh, most recently reported year, 2019, uh, memory made up 40% of revenue. I wanted to just add here that this is how the company started. This was the core business of the company in the 1990s, and they still outsource various chips and slap their label on those chips. But as far as RAM is concerned, they still retain their manufacturing facility. It's based in Taiwan, so they can control production um, and they can fine-tune production with demand. So to me, that, that's a pretty uh, solid core revenue stream to have, and they've obviously built on top of that with uh, all the other types of components we've been talking about. And um, you have a point on their gross margin that you wanted to make. I'm just such a nitpicky person, aren't I? I apologize. You have to uh, be. <laughs> <laughs> it's my job, right? No. So I'll go, all these numbers are from the year end 2019. And I recognize that these um, have, in some cases, changed uh, 
not in a nominal manner in 2020, but I, I think it's mostly fair to look at 2019 as a stable year, given how weird 2020 was for production, for sales. So looking at 2019, as you mentioned, over 40% of sales came from what they call memory products, so things like RAM. Another 27% came from the peripherals, so keyboards, uh, mice, computer cases, that sort of thing. And the rest of it was made up by what they call other component products. So other things you would stick into your your computer to make it run, so uh, power adapters, for instance. And if you look at the way that gross margin breaks down, the segment that is the lowest gross margin for them, again, at the end of 2019, is their memory products. And it's fine. But what I want to see is I want to see that focus on higher value software. And I want to see gross margins improving to the point where I think, okay, people are willing to pay more for the Corsair product that would show a higher level of pricing power in their brand that I'm seeing right now in their gross margins. This is really nitpicky because, like I said, this is a hardware business. You can't look at a hardware business and say, man, I just I wish you had 80% gross margins, like DocuSign, for instance. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, but what I think is fair to say is that, okay, you, you spent the last 20 years, or really the last five to 10 years, building up a strong brand, um, selling really valuable hardware components. Now, what can you do to make those customers sticky? And what can you do to make those customers want to pay 20 or 30% more for Corsair over the competitors? Because over long terms, I think investors want to see those memory products jump up from you know 16% uh, margins right now, which is, which is where they are, to maybe 20 or 25% to prove that there's value for them over the competitors. This is an excellent point, Emily. In fact, if you think, going back to brand, if you think about how you improve that margin, it, it's just that. It's the brand power. It's asking someone to, to pay more. So much of the business, although they do manufacture quite a bit of components, is um, outside of the RAM, is, is slapping their name on things like chips. Um, so they outsource and then they brand that outsource component. I was looking over Logitech's net sales by product category. And I, I realized that they have been in this business for a long time as well. So Logitech has gross margins that today are around 42%. So double the um, gross margins of this business and double uh, a well-known competitor, Razor, which I mentioned before, which also has gross margins in the 20 to 22% range. But Logitech, I'm just going to read a couple of these categories, pointing devices, keyboards and combos, PC webcams, tablets and other accessories, gaming, video collaboration, mobile speakers, audio and wearables, smart home, other. They have such a powerful brand in the market, even though they are not looked at as, as a really high quality, super high quality brand in the gaming sector. If you just think about buying Logitech brands, if you need a new mouse, um, I have one. So we're taping right now. You can't see this if you're listening. We're on live. I hope you can see that. But I bought this mouse a while ago. I needed a wireless mouse, replaced mine, and I bought Logitech because I know the brand and I know that it's going to be good quality. Logitech has pricing power. That brand name is worth whatever you know I didn't pay by just getting the cheapest thing off of Amazon. I actually went to an office store and bought this mouse because I use my mouse every day. So this is the next step for this company is to capitalize on a pretty nice brand among enthusiasts, but be able to find some way um, to charge more for products. The other way is, you know, I agree with you, is to have a more of a software component. Unfortunately, they haven't really focused as much on that. But this is something that I think the company can 
work on, even a few percentage points worth of margin will help going forward. Let's say if they could get up from around 20%, 21%, up to the 25 to 26% range, that would be a step forward in the next several years. And one of the reasons why their margins may be less compelling than Logitech is just how much of their sales come through third-party platforms like Amazon. Um, over the last 12 months, Amazon represented 30% of revenue, or just about 30% of revenue, and sales to the 10 largest customers were over 52% of sales over the same time period. Um, so there's something to be said there for just reliance upon third parties as opposed to getting a little bit more direct-to-consumer sales, which could be, even without changing the product suite, a higher margin sale for them. To your point, Asset, I'm looking down at my keyboard and my mouse right now, both of which are Logitech branded. So I think it's fair to say a casual gamer, I'm, I'm going to officially start calling myself that now, a, a casual gamer like myself. It's a slippery slope, Emily. It is a slippery slope, isn't it? <laughs> I don't need Corsair's keyboard or Corsair's mouse uh, to enjoy my experience. But for people who live more closely into that lifestyle, when they're looking to upgrade to what they would be like a mechanical keyboard or a gaming keyboard, a gaming mouse, something that lights up that you can then hook up to other Corsair products, which are lights behind your computer, which integrate into your games. I mean, these are things that Corsair offers. That's just truly an immersive experience that really only appeals to what is the highest value gamer in the ecosystem. Um, I think there's a room for Logitech and Corsair to be successful just because it does feel like they're targeting different people, right? Logitech wants um, the Ossets and the Emilys of the world when our mouse breaks to go down to Home Depot or to Amazon or to wherever, whatever third-party retailer we're going to and pick up a, a Logitech uh, platform or Logitech hardware. And in Corsair's case, I think it would make sense for them to to more closely target higher value gamers and potentially have them just go directly to Corsair's own e-commerce store next time they need to replace one of their items. Yeah, and you know certainly they they can do that. I think they're off to a good start, even as we say, you know they're they're a couple of decades old. Um, they certainly have this opportunity moving forward. And speaking of opportunity, a couple of points about the market opportunity here. Okay, so gaming represents, is this, is this right, Emily? Gaming represents more than 10% of leisure time in the U.S.? So that, that that's sounds a number, about right, actually. That's a number they threw out in their S1. And it's funny because that, to me, actually sounded a little bit low. Although, admittedly, they're saying that that doesn't include streaming or people watching people play video games, which I feel like if you combine that with just game time itself could probably be a much even bigger market opportunity than they've expressed. But yes, that's what they say, at least. Well, this gets me excited uh, about this company and the market in general. So the global gaming PC and streaming market, over $36 billion in 2019. And this market is driven by mainly a smaller subset of gamers. They spend most of their time on gaming setups. So you point out, Emily, this means for Corsair that they're attracting and retaining that smaller subsect of gamers who are going to pay up for the gear. Now, um, two points to make about this. I like that this market is so big, and I like that it's growing quickly. I dug around, and if you average out different people's opinions on how fast this market is growing, you'll land around 10%, so a compounded annual growth rate of 10% for this market. Why I love this? Because in the consumer goods space, if you find a company that's in a faster growing market and it is still relatively young, 
you can pin that company's growth to the market. In other words, if Corsair is going to just grow as fast as the market grows, it'll be growing at a 10% compounded clip every year. Now, if it exceeds that, it can grow at a 15 to 20% case. And by and large, fast-moving markets, um, better companies will grow at or, or beyond that rate. So, there's built-in opportunity for the company to increase its revenue and its revenue expansion rate. The second part of this that I really like is that here we go back to brand. Maybe this does mean that there is a lot of potential as the market grows for Corsair to tap into um, select gamers. Now, this is anecdotal. I always try to give a warning. Take it for what it's worth. I called up my son uh, this weekend in Germany. He's in engineering school there. He's studying mechanical engineering. He's not really a gamer. He, he games some. I guess he's a casual gamer like you, Emily. But he does build mechanical keyboards in his spare time. He's been doing this for years. And he helps his friends uh, build computers to spec who are gamers. And here's what he told me about Corsair, his opinion. He said that Corsair is a type of brand that when you become serious about gaming, you're going to step up to it. They're really, really respected, a very solid brand. But he said that people who are really, really diving into gaming in, in a big way, they start to look beyond Corsair um, into like higher priced boutique brands, which I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, it seems like there's more of them popping up all the time. And he also told me that they've lost a little bit of their luster. Just as the market has grown and more people have gotten into the gaming uh, market and have been exposed to so many brands, if you have built your own keyboard, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever tried to spec out parts for a keyboard, it's not that you're going to do this organic Google search and only come up with Corsair as offering you the components. You'll see a lot of cool companies with some really attractive um keys. And I've, I've watched him do this when he when he visits at home. And, and I wanted to build me a keyboard at some point because you can make some really whacked out keyboards. And I have this uh, boring Logitech keyboard. <laughs> Here we go. Brands. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to throw this out for what it's worth. This is one person's opinion. Um, but after having said all this about brands, what are your thoughts, Emily, about this company's potential as consumers become more familiar with it and they have a potential to either stick with Corsair or move on to higher-priced, smaller boutique companies? It's a good business. And I actually think that uh, more businesses, especially boutique brands getting into the space, says a lot about the market opportunity. And I almost feel like it's this natural progression that happens when a brand reaches critical mass um, of acceptance, where the people who are uh, you know, loyalists for whatever aspect it is, whether it be keyboards, mice, or even uh, say RAM, I'm not sure if there's any RAM loyalists out there, but maybe there <laughs> <Could> are. <be. laughs> <laughs> they go to they go to what's niche, and Corsair is no longer niche. I think that's a totally fair statement. But that's a better thing for the business. Is if you lose the people who are really really deeply ingrained, but you get the larger mass of people who are just looking to upgrade their PCs. That, to me, in my opinion, is probably the better market to be in for investors. But I have to admit, I. I think I'm not super interested. 
and part of the reason why I'm not super interested is because I'm not sure how I believe in the upgrade cycle and what's going to happen to the upgrade cycle for computers over the next, say, five to 10 years. And since I am a long-term investor, I'm 26. So the companies that I buy today, I plan on holding for 20 plus years. What makes me nervous about the idea of holding Corsair for the next decade or two decades is the emergence of more efficient machines and things like cloud gaming. One of the highlights that Corsair's management was sure to point out in their S1 was how dependent they were on third parties to improve their, say, games, for instance. Games that are higher quality games, Cyberpunk 2077, uh, which came out not too long ago, had a lot of pushback, not just because it was poorly optimized. I don't want to, don't tweet at me. I know that the game had issues, <laughs> but in part because people's computers or systems couldn't handle it. And that's actually what drives a lot of the sales of Corsair's, Corsair's products, especially things like memory or power, cooling systems, is because these third party items need people to upgrade their PCs to better play them. And with the emergence of cloud gaming, which would allow people to stream games um, from somebody else's server, somebody else's computers to their own, wouldn't require high-end products to run these third-party games or programs. So I think that's where the future is going. Now, of course, the people who are playing games professionally are probably not going to stream them from somebody else's server. But I think that the mass of people for whom Corsair is trying to get by their products could eventually go the way of just not needing to upgrade their PCs anymore. Therefore, I don't need to get a new SSD card or a new uh, memory system or a new cooling system because my current one's fine to run the new products as they come out. That might be a ways off, but I think that's the thing that makes me the most nervous with this investment. Yeah, I, I mean, I will talk about another risk that makes me a little nervous, and that is that the company is really not paying much attention to the mobile market, and that's by design. Just what you're talking about, Emily, the increasing sophistication of games makes it easy for Corsair to be a player in the console space uh, with PCs, peripherals, etc. So, because they built their whole business around this model, in one sense, they don't need to look at the mobile market. There's plenty of place. We've been talking about their market opportunities. There's plenty of space for them to play in. But you know, mobile gaming is growing at a really accelerated pace. And it's catching interest from a lot of younger enthusiasts. This is one of the things, when you hear these buzzwords like edge computing and 5G thrown around, this is one of the spaces where you might see a tangible effect in just a few years. That is with an increased amount of power in server networks and proximity to end devices, to, to mobile phones and, and tablets, you reduce latency. And latency is sort of just the pause in milliseconds between the time you send a request to a server on your device and the time you get that information back. As 5G also enables faster communication, the promise is that you'll be able to play really high-definition games right on your mobile device. I do understand that certain games need uh, peripherals. They're just not as realistic without something in your hands. Um, I get that. But on the other hand, there's this huge part of the market that's exploding. And again, people even younger than yourself, Emily, are natively uh, coming up to play mobile games on their phones. So this is a risk for me. And they do address it in their S1. They talk about 2.4 billion mobile gamers last year, but how focused they are on developing their gear. And, and sort of their, their response is, is, 
we're aware of this, but we're still going to shrug our shoulders and stay focused on our market. So for me, maybe that's um, a risk that really gives me some pause. Um, I also try to invest for the very long term. So this is a company I would follow, but because of these concerns, I'm not ready to jump in just now. Maybe if they acquire another software type company or, or get some type of subscription service to your point running and build those margins and increase opportunity there, it might become a little more interesting to me. I'm not saying it's a bad company by any means. It has become profitable during COVID-19 and hopefully they will hold on to that boost. But um, any other risks that you see um, that might give you some pause on this one? Um, it's actually, I think it's hilarious that you highlighted the mobile risk. I'm such a curmudgeon. I didn't even think about the mobile industry. I, I, <laughs> I, despite my relatively young age, I grew up in the era of mobile phones. I have to use my phone. I use Fidelity as my brokerage and they only let you trade fractional shares over your mobile device. And anytime same, I want to trade, a, yeah, anytime I want to trade a fractional shale, I always get really irritated because I have to get my phone, log into the app, make the purchase on the app. So I had completely forgotten how big of a market mobile gaming is. And I actually really like that you highlighted the risk that they have on, on really essentially right now, purely PC gaming for the most part. And increasingly streaming, which is a good market to be in, but not growing as quickly as mobile devices. So I actually like uh, that risk. I, I still have my issue about the future of, say, cloud gaming, things like Google Stadia, Amazon Luna, or Microsoft xCloud. All of those things make me a little bit nervous about the need for peripherals and need for upgrade systems. But I like that. I, I mean, I'd, I'd want them to see them doing more in the mobile market. Yeah. And um, I should point out here that Vis-a-vis -vis Fidelity, I have the same issue. <laughs> they do <laughs> it on now, purpose. <laughs> I just decided to only use my phone when I can, just because it was sort of irritating to, to, when I wanted to buy fractional shares to, to log in, just as what you're saying. But um, you know, I find maybe I'm like gradually gravitating to that versus the web interface. But listeners, it's a really great platform. If you want to buy fractional shares, Fidelity does a great job of that. You can you know, plug in a dollar and, and buy a dollar of a company that you like. So it's probably worth the trouble. You could buy a dollar or $10 or $100 of Corsair, for instance. Exactly. Now, Emily, before we get out of here for today, we should mention something that might be confusing to shareholders or investors. If you're looking for their S1, their um, prospectus for their, their initial public offering, if you're looking at the most recent document, they're actually doing a secondary offering that is pricing today as we record. Um, so just really briefly, we mentioned Eagle Tree Capital, which is the um, longtime private equity investor in Corsair. They're cashing out a portion of their shares today, along with um, some smaller shares from, from key um, executives in the company. They're going to offer 7.5 million shares to the public today, or they, they are offering those. And their underwriters have an option to purchase an additional 1.125 million shares. Now, the company's not going to get um, any of these proceeds. This is just something I mentioned earlier. Private equity firms will, will keep doing this. They'll decide to sell a chunk of shares as they go along. Eagle Tree Capital is still going to own about 68.5% of the company after today's sales are complete. So they still can, this private equity firm still controls Corsair and, and Corsair's destiny. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that as we exit. 
I actually have two additional thoughts. Thank you for highlighting the the secondary offering. I'd completely forgotten about it, and that could definitely be confusing for investors. Uh, two additional things. One is you gave me the great opportunity, which I totally uh, overlooked, to highlight one of the additional risks that I had noted down but forgotten about, which is I, I, I feel the need to disclaim it anytime we cover a company that mentions this, but there were material weaknesses when they went public. Um, these are material weaknesses related to um, insufficient trained resources, I guess, to detect um, issues regarding their financial reporting, a failure to identify key risks. Uh, so, uh, lots of, of financial reporting issues that starting in 2021, when they cease to be an emerging growth company, they're going to have to have an independent auditor attest to their internal controls. So with that coming inevitably this next year, as well as the issues that they highlighted regarding their material weaknesses, it always makes me a little bit nervous when a company can't accurately report their own financial performance, especially a company this old. So that's a little bit of a, of a red flag for me. And then lastly, Asit, one other thing I want to mention before we get off here is as we're taping, I am finding out from our live audience that we are out of date in our Fidelity knowledge. Apparently, Fidelity lets you trade fractional sales shares on the web interface now. That is good news because <laughs> I have been, and, and I've, uh, again, those of you who are listening um, can't see this, we're taping live, but my cracked old. Motorola Android phone. It's such a hassle. Thank you, everyone. That's so good to know. I'll go to the web next time. And I was, <laughs> you know? I was literally buying shares yesterday, and I, I wanted to buy equal proportions. So I went onto the app and did it all in the app, and it was very frustrated. Now I'm kicking myself knowing that I could have just done it on the web. Well, we have the rest of uh, 2021 to, to now enjoy buying fractional shares right <laughs> off the web interface. Really quick point, Emily, I love that you point out this on uh, internal controls because you know, it seems something that's like audit ease, you know, just jargon, but it's extremely important, this whole idea of internal controls, because if those aren't sufficiently strong, then there's all types of things that can happen. You, a company may not be able to monitor its systems um, to know how much inventory it has, uh, there are so many things that can go wrong. And, and I also get a, a cold fuzzy. So warm fuzzy, and, and I'm an auditor by training, a warm fuzzy is when everything comes together, the numbers and everything you observe, and you, you want to um, be able to give a clean opinion. But a cold fuzzy is when things don't look right. And when you start with weaknesses in internal controls, that's never a good sign. So hopefully they clean that up and let's see um, what kind of attestation they get um, how the opinion looks next time around. So this will be important for shareholders. Always follow those quarterly and annual reports. They're worth reading. They tell you so much. I love cold fuzzy. I'm going to start using that <laughs> from now often. Feel free. Uh, Asset, thanks as always for joining. Thanks a lot, Emily. I'm going to refrain, re try to restrain myself from going out and buying a high-end uh, component after this but I definitely now that we have, have talked about this, want to look at some of the gear I'm using. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. I, I'm in the market for a new keyboard. I broke the uh, little stilts, I guess, that my keyboard typically sits on. So I may I may get myself a Corsair keyboard for, for research. <laughs> I'll say stock awesome. research. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, you can always shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet at us at MF Industry Focus. 
As always, people on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!